Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, to strike a celebratory note for New Year's Eve, our 20th anniversary special, on stage at the Toronto International Festival of Authors with Dion Brand, Margaret Drabble, Deborah Eisenberg, and Andrew O'Hagan. not thinking. Isn't this an ideal state that you're thinking about only about and feeling the present? You're not thinking about what you have to do or what may happen. Isn't that a kind of nirvana or something? I'm asking you. I can't imagine I'm interviewing it. you. I, <laughs> I can't imagine it. That's why I'm having trouble answering <laughs> Could you read your poem called "On Love"? It's from a, a well. I, well, a if you don't speech. mind, I, I won't. Uh, I, I'd rather uh, don't because it's uh, uh, it's an old poem, and I don't think I can read it well. <laughs> well, um, well, uh, if you insist, I mind. What was the appeal for you of performing? Oh, showing off, I suppose. Um, I suppose as a small child, I won the attention or approval or diminish the disapproval of my peers by being able to do things like imitate clucking hens or make sounds that were convincingly like railway trains. Can you still do the train? I can still do the train, do yes. The train? Oh, yes, yeah. I found that this is the way in which a train goes along. This is an old-fashioned train. Yeah. And so on and so forth, you see. Well, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, I'm ashamed to give vent to it. Um, but there we are, it served its purpose. Nula O'Fuelen, like most life stories, yours begins with a mother, and I, w- I want to talk a little about that. Well, should the exceptions? <laughs> I really enjoyed the chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. No, I, I, I've been very moved by this. I, I hope I yet get to meet you. I, I'm very grateful to you, ma'am. Very grateful to you, indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a wonderful person. What is her name? What a wonderful woman. What is her name, dear? Eleanor. Eleanor. Eleanor Wachtel. Oh, and where does she live? What city? In Toronto. Oh, if I ever go there and lecture again, I would like to meet her. Oh, how nice. I know she'd love to meet you. What an intelligent, sensitive, good-natured, kind, compassionate person. Ah, very touching. Thank you. Very touching. You. Very touching. Very touching. Yeah, no, if, if you get a chance to talk to her sometime, tell her 
Sir, I'm very, uh, very grateful. Oh, good. Thank very grateful. Very much, I, thank you very much, ma'am. Voices from the first 20 years of Writers and Company. You heard in reverse order Harold Bloom, Nula O'Fuelen, Jonathan Miller, Joseph Brodsky, and Alice Monroe. Over the years, Writers and Company has celebrated its milestones with onstage events featuring some of our favorite guests. In 2010, for the 20th anniversary, we brought together a dynamic group of writers, including Margaret Drabble, who came in from England for the occasion, as well as Deborah Eisenberg from New York, along with Andrew O'Hagan and Dion Brand. Today you'll hear the lively discussion recorded on that occasion before a packed house at Harborfront in Toronto. Dion Brand is a poet, novelist, and essayist who was born in Guaya Guayari, Trinidad, in 1953. When she was 17, she graduated from Napamira Girls High School and joined her older sister in Toronto, where she went to university. With more than two dozen books, from No Language is Neutral and A Map to the Door of No Return, to What We All Long For, from Ossuaries and Love Enough to The Blue Clerk and Theory, she's a powerful voice of insight and identity. She's the recipient of virtually every major prize, including the Griffin Poetry Prize, the Trillium Book Award, and the U.S. $165,000 Wyndham Campbell Prize. Dion Brand's fiction, poetry, and essays have not only won awards, but they also have a kind of impact and influence that's unusual. Dion was the City of Toronto's Poet Laureate. She was the poetry editor of McClelland and Stewart, and now she's the editorial director of Alchemy, an imprint of Knopf Canada. Her latest book is Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems. Margaret Drabble has been writing fiction for 60 years. She was only 24 when her first book, A Summer Birdcage, was published in 1963. Her work has engaged with the changing lives of women, and more broadly, 20th century British society as a whole, politics under Margaret Thatcher, a country divided economically into North and South. She even sends a character to engage with the ramifications of genocidal war in Cambodia. A busy social canvas replaced individual psychology. Drabble has also tackled more personal subjects that she's described as the most difficult, merging fiction with memoir in The Peppered Moth in an attempt to capture the life of her mother, and then in The Pattern in the Carpet, which was subtitled A Personal History with Jigsaws. It's a curious blend of memoir, history, and the delights of puzzling. In 2008, for her contributions to contemporary English literature, Margaret Drabble was made a Dame of the British Empire. Her most recent novel, The Dark Flood Rises, a fictional meditation on aging, was named one of the best books of 2016. Deborah Eisenberg's short stories are so layered and rich, written with what one critic aptly referred to as off-kilter elegance, that you feel that any one of them could be a novel. You're inhabiting a whole world, and one that is subtly political. 
Eisenberg is remarkably self-deprecating, despite winning five O. Henry Awards, the Ray Award for the short story, and the Whiting Prize, as well as Penn, Guggenheim, and Lenan Foundation Fellowships, plus the half-million-dollar MacArthur Genius Award. Eisenberg was born in Chicago in 1945. She's lived in New York for almost 40 years with the playwright and actor Wally Shawn. Alongside an omnibus, almost 1,000-page collected stories, her latest book is called Your Duck is My Duck. Novelist and essayist Andrew O'Hagan was born in Glasgow in 1968 and grew up in a working-class family, first in Glasgow and then in nearby Kilwinning, a new town built to accommodate the urban overflow. His father was a laborer, his mother a cleaner, among other jobs. O'Hagan is the youngest of four and became the first in his family to attend university. After he graduated with first-class honors, he moved to London, where he beat out 200 contenders and became deputy editor of the London Review of Books. His debut novel, Our Fathers, was a finalist for a whole slew of prizes. O'Hagan was named one of Granta magazine's best young British novelists. His novel, Be Near Me, was a Booker finalist as well. Andrew O'Hagan has also been called the best essayist of his generation. His most recent novel, Mayflies, won the Christopher Isherwood Prize and was made into a BBC television miniseries. Here now, Dion Brand, Margaret Drabble, Deborah Eisenberg, and Andrew O'Hagan. Since we'll be doing some looking back during this show, I'd like to start by looking way back with your own earliest memory, Andrew O'Hagan. My earliest memory is to do with my father's chaos. So many of my memories are to do with my father's chaos, but um, he was always uh, disappearing into this uh, rather strange sort of dreamlike place called England. (laughs) He'd leave Scotland uh, for months at a time and he would come back, you know, usually with a new dog or a new car, Um, (laughs) neither of which had cost him any money, he would tell us uh, very proudly. And my earliest memory is of my father driving into the square in this housing estate we grew up on in Scotland, driving a well, not quite driving, that would be sort of stronging it a bit. I mean, he was being pushed by three other men (laughs) with him at the wheel. I've never seen anybody so proud in the midst of desolation (laughs) as my father was driving that blue van into the square. That's my first memory. How old were you have been, approximately? I think I was about four. What did he actually do? For a living, uh, yeah. Well, that's a big question in the sense that, <laughs> you know, when not being apprehended by the police, uh, he, was, he was a joiner, a carpenter. I mean, he wasn't very good at holding down a job, though. He liked drink too much. Um, and he had the national habit of finding both solace and... Uh, in drink, and uh, also a spur to action. So he would, uh, he would get drunk and sort of go, go on adventures that would sometimes last for months. I rather admired that in him, actually. Uh, he regrets it, but I, I don't. It made him exciting. He was like a person in a film. Dion Brand, your earliest memory? I think around two or three, I remember. I was born in this small village called Guayaguayari in the very, very south of Trinidad. And from that village, you could sort of look out 
at the ocean and you could see Venezuela. This was the, the big thing, it, on a clear day. And um, I remember uh, we had a house, there was a small house. I lived with my grandmother and my grandfather and a number of siblings. And um, the back of the house was the ocean. And at the front of the house, there seemed to me to be a row of orange flowers. And I'd set off each day to walk toward them. And I'd never get there. And somewhere in between the house and the grove of flowers, I'd stop and start wailing for somebody to come get me because I just didn't seem to be able to get there. Right? And, um, and I just remember that. I just remember standing in the path between the house and the flowers, crying. I wanted to get there, but I couldn't get there, and I couldn't get back to the house. And it's a recurring kind of memory. So when I was about 24, having emigrated to Canada years and years before, I decided I'm going to go back there and see what that, that row of flowers were. And I went back and I couldn't find them. But I looked around and looked around and saw a little, little thing, like uh, big like this, perhaps, that, that orange heliconia. And I thought, was that the big field that I had seen? <laughs> because maybe it was, because when you're, you're little. And I, maybe that's my life, looking at something very small, thinking it's very large. <laughs> no, I think so, I really do. But it was just this really tiny grove of, of orange flowers. I suspect it was the same. Deborah Eisenberg. I just have a few flashes from childhood. And I have two memories of asking my mother what word represented the feeling that I was experiencing. And I remember those words. One was embarrassment, and one was retrospect. Retrospect? And, yeah. That's a pretty fancy word for uh, a two-year-old. Particularly, three. how much retrospect could I have <laughs> <laughs> uh, And then I have just one other memory from childhood, and that was of being in... I think it must have been a playpen, you know, with those bars, that sort of cage that children are in. And looking at the marvelous spectacle of the dust in the beam of light from the window, and it went on and on and on and on. And I thought, when will this ever end? <laughs> and that's, that's it for my childhood. <laughs> That's very existential. <laughs> Margaret Rappel. My memory is um, of being in my pram. I know you're not meant to be able to remember that, but I know I can. And I was in my pram, and it was in the South Yorkshire town called Pontefract, a small mining town to which we were evacuated during the war. And I was sitting in my pram in the high street, and another child came and looked at me. And I didn't like it at all. This other child was a walking child, and I was strapped into my pram. And I felt, go away, leave me alone, go away. And I'm sorry to say that my earliest memory is of indignation. <laughs> Which isn't very dignified. Deborah, what made you a reader? Possibly boredom. 
I grew up in the suburbs. But the availability of books was certainly a critical thing. I mean, my parents had a big bookshelf, and there were books in it, and uh, so I would grab them. But I think that it came to me very early that, I mean, I talked very late. I didn't talk till I was, God knows, uh, seven or something. I mean, <laughs> you know, ridiculous. But I... Um, think that I got the idea very, very early about reading that you could have the experience of another person if you were reading. So it was marvelous for me. Margaret? I fell in love with the actual act of reading. I loved the fact that I could turn these letters into words. Um, and it wasn't the story to begin with, it was just being able to do it. And I remember my first reading books very well. It wasn't for the story. One was called Tot and the Cat, and all the, all the words had three letters. And the other was um, a reading primer, as we called them. I think you call them readers. And it was called The Radiant Way, which was the title of one of my later novels. And that was all things like Pat can sing, Mother can sing, sing to Mother Pat. And it wasn't very interesting, but it was, it was extremely gripping to me that I could actually <laughs> that I could turn that into the words I could then say it was satisfying and, and you say that um, there's one story has it that when your father came back from the war that he spent time getting to know you by sitting with you and, and reading or spelling out the words of, for the, from the Radiant Way I believe he did sit down with me uh, this was in Pontefract after he had been demobbed from the RAF and he did indeed not having seen me I was born at the outbreak of war he was off to um, the Middle East um, North Africa and when, I, when he came back I didn't know him at all my elder sister greeted him with delight and tears but I had no idea who this man was and um, he learnt to know me by reading with me which probably also enhances your memory, your, your positive the pleasure, association, the pleasure, the pleasure, of, of, pleasure of, of it. Yeah. Yes. Dion, what, what made you a reader? Well, I thought it was better than washing the dishes. I really did. <laughs> I hated to wash the dishes. And we had this, you know, uh, I grew up with lots of cousins and sisters and brothers. And, and we had turns washing dishes, cleaning the floor, shining the my grandfather's shoes, etc. And my grandfather was the most important person in the house, and he read the newspaper. <laughs> and he read the newspaper while we did the shoes and, and did the floors and so on. I thought, that's a great-looking life. <laughs> and, um, and I really hated to wash the dishes, and I had to wash them every Wednesday, I think, or something like that. And I'd take off and dive under my grandmother's bed and read. Where, was, where did you find books? That... Um, my uncle was a teacher, and he would bring home extra work for us to do, <laughs> extra reading, extra exercises, and grammar exercises, and so on. And I really loved that. And, and I loved them both, my uncle and my grandfather, so much. And I kind of wanted to please them, too. And I wanted to be like them, I think. Andrew. We were Catholics on the west coast of Scotland. And in those years, the west coast of Scotland, as much as Northern Ireland, was sectarian. And we grew up in a very sectarian town. It was a Protestant town. It was a Protestant country in many ways. And being a Catholic was a very exotic thing to be. I remember uh, having a strong sense, very young, that the entire history of my family was under-described. 
It was unwritten. We had songs. My mother made supper and we'd talk about things at the table, but beyond that, there was no literature and there was no books in the house. There were no photographs. There were no letters. People had lived and died in our family and never had their name in print in any sense. And that, um, that began to obsess me. And when I started to, as soon as I could read actually, I wanted to use reading as a way of trying to real, imagine my, ex my family into existence and my ancestors into being. Of course, it was quite odd because at school, the books that we were presented with immediately were so nothing to do with our lives. I'll never forget being handed a book. I was quite excited because I was one of those kids who was desperate to read. I was sort of, within no time, I was reading to the class. Um, but there was a book that was presented to us, I'll never forget it. It was called Dick, Dora, Nip and Fluff. <laughs> and the lives being lived by the people in this book were unlike anything I'd ever seen before. <laughs> they brushed their teeth regularly and with vigour and with enthusiasm. They lived in a square house out on its own with a tree in the front yard. Uh, the mother and father spoke to each other gently. <laughs> the children liked their lives. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. I couldn't go over it. But actually, it spurred me on as a, as a reader and a writer eventually because I thought, no, life isn't entirely about that. And I want to get the sort of hidden things onto the page. So as a reader, I started searching for things. We'd go to Mass on a Sunday morning, and my father would always say to me, you're so distracted all the time. What's up with you? Think about your prayers. He was a good one to talk. <laughs> <laughs> but I was distracted because right across the road from the church uh, in, in Ayrshire, where I, I, I went, there was the local library. There were no books in that library about people like us. No novels written by young Catholic women, young Catholic men, describing their irregular toothbrushing. <laughs> and I thought, perhaps someday I'll put a book into that library. Because I remember you were talking about, um, when you mentioned no books in the house, that uh, your father said that uh, there was a book in the house that he did read. Yeah, he was really upset. I said on Radio 4 in London once that there were no books in the house, and my father rang me up and said, you're a liar, by the way. <laughs> I said, I know that, but any, any specific occasion? <laughs> he said, aye, you were on the radio the other day, and you said there were no books in the house. There was a book. It was green. It was on top of the fridge for ages. <laughs> And I said, that's true, you know, but I don't think the Kilmarnock telephone directory counts. <laughs> so that was reading. <laughs> you, start, you start to suggest what made you a writer. You said the library and... An encouraging teacher. I was a beneficiary of the greatest cliche and the most beautiful cliche known to educational experience, which is the great teacher. I had one great teacher. She spotted me for a fool and a clown, and I always smoked. I smoked when I was really young. And she said, you're one of those smokers who give out cigarettes at the corner. And she was right about that. I had lots of friends, and I was always entertaining them. And saw my role in life as 
to give people a sense of fun and all that, even from quite a young age. And she took me aside and said, you know, you're a clown and everything and you're quite likeable, but actually you're much more intelligent than you think. And I said, don't be daft. <laughs> she said, no, no, seriously, you've read more books than me. I thought she was quite old at the time, but now that I think of it, Mrs. McNeil, the flame-haired Mrs. McNeil, was probably about 25. <laughs> uh, and she said to me, you're in one of those houses, you know, where nobody reads and everybody's a bit stupid. Um, I said, no, no, they're not stupid. They're just sort of, you know, they just know how to enjoy themselves. <laughs> and she said, well, the thing about you is that you, you could go to university because none of my brothers have gone anywhere like that. You're the, young- <coughs> I'm the youngest. You're the youngest of four. I'm the youngest of four, yeah. And my brothers had all left school at sort of, well, one of them got thrown out at 15 uh, and the others left at 16. And, and she said, you, you could avoid that. You could go to university. And I was, again, don't be daft. You know, there was no precedent for that. There was no expectation of that. Um, but anyway, she started keeping me after school. And this was a very cold Scottish winter. I'll never forget it. It got dark about half past two in the afternoon, <laughs> it being Scotland and it being the winter. And this very orange glowing school at the edge of a housing estate with sort of barbed wire sort of, you know, between it and the housing estate. And she would keep me in a class with the lights burning to prepare me for university. I'll never forget her. And, you know, we did all of Thomas Hardy's novels and the poems of W.B. Yeats and uh, several of Shakespeare's plays over that winter. And I loved her for that. She saved my life. And I described this experience... Somebody asked me what I was thinking about in the car going to the Booker Prize when I was nominated the last time. And I said uh, in an interview that I thought of Mrs. McNeil all the way to the Guild Hall, to this, you know, I knew I was coming up the car to cameras and glitz. And I was on my own and I thought of Mrs. McNeil and thought how she had devoted herself to a notion of improving me and making me step up to what I might be. And I said this in an interview and I got this letter from Mrs. McNeil all these years later. And she said that she'd been, this was a radio interview I said, and she said she was sitting down to have supper with her husband and the radio was on. And she heard me say that and she burst into tears. And she said, that's what you always hope for. When you work in a housing estate like that, in a school like that, your dream is that you'll save some children, that they'll put them to a place that they might not otherwise have gone to. And I'll never forget her. Dion. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm living Andrew O'Hagan's life in the, another hemisphere. <laughs> I had a miscarlet. <laughs> so beautiful. Well, I, what, what was beautiful about her was she came along around 1968, 69. I must have been about 13. And it was also the height of a lot of upheaval in the black power movement in the United States, but also in the Caribbean, and a, yeah, a lot of anti-colonial movement. And she had an Afro. That was a resume for me. That was the CV. <laughs> right? And so immediately she walked into the school, and, and I just loved her. And, and then I was in her English class, and she had us write an essay about civil rights, and I wrote my essay. And she took me aside and said, you know, you can be a writer. I was really good. 
And I think it was the first time that I'd been pointed out in any way throughout my whole um, primary school or high school life as, uh, as a particular being, uh, as a, a being with things that might happen to her that were extraordinary, possibly. And just that buoyed me for oh, the rest. But I was incredibly grateful to her. It sustained me for a long time that one could, in fact, write oneself. And in the same way that we were not contained in books, in the, any of the books that I read as a child or any of the books that I read in school or had to read or any, any of the stories or any of the histories or any of those things. And so that I wanted to write for someone like me to read and to read themselves in, in, in a work of literature. And I think she uh, started that with me. She said I could do it. Deborah. Well, these two incredibly moving stories. Mine was almost the inverse, I suppose. My ambition in life really was to do nothing. And almost all the books around me were about people like us. You know, sort of middle class, suburban, that sort of thing. Well, not all of them. I mean, Dostoevsky is an exception, for example. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I mean, it was expected of the children who grew up where I grew up that we would be, we could do anything, we could be anything, we would be successful. And this idea I found in regard to myself both offensive and amazingly improbable. <laughs> and so I really wanted no part of any kind of prestige or credentials, anything of the sort. And I was very fortunate to have started living with a wonderful man who was a writer. And I... Uh, was a very, very heavy smoker. I smoked three packs of Goldwas a day. I loved every minute of it, adored it. I, I read somewhere that you can remember every cigarette you smoked. I, yes. <laughs> I know them by name. Um, and uh, he was very asthmatic at that time. And I... <laughs> yeah, I thought, finally, a great guy. Do I want to kill him? I don't think so. So... I decided that I would stop smoking. And for years he had said to me, you've got to find something that you like to do. And I said, well, I like to do nothing. That's what I want to do. Uh, and he said, no, no, you're wrong. You're not going to be happy. Well, now back to Margaret in the pram, uh, experiencing the indignation. Uh, I, I did quit smoking. And the accumulation of rage that came forward in me without the narcotic was simply terrifying. And I'm referring to Margaret's story because I really think that indignation and rage are 
an immense stimulus to write. And at any rate, this wonderful man I live with handed me a piece of paper and a pencil, and he said, well, you have nothing to lose now. And I had always thought, well, you know, if I, the world is filled with writers, and I've heard other writers say exactly the same words, unless I'm as good as Dostoevsky, why should I do it? And that's what I always had felt up until I stopped smoking and became so desperate and crazed. And um, at that point, I just thought, well, it's true. It really doesn't matter how terrible I am. So that's how I began. <laughs> and your first story was somewhat autobiographical because yeah, days. it's the only, even slightly autobiographical story I've written. It's about, well, it happens to be about somebody who stopped smoking. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. Margaret Drabble, you, you originally, I think, were, had plans to be an actress. What made you a writer? I became a writer by default, really. Um, I did indeed want to be an actress. Um, my first husband was and is an actor, and he got all the parts, and I was doing all the understudies, and um, I started to write a book in the evenings when he was on stage, and I wasn't doing anything very much, and it kept me company, and um, it became my life. I, for years and years and years, I would have much preferred to be on stage, but gradually it became um, what I did. And now it, I didn't long to be a writer when I was a child. It, it, it was not something I dreamed of. I, I loved reading, and I mean, unlike Andrew and Dion's story, I came from the second generation of um, families who hadn't read in the past, but then both my parents were the first generation educated people. And we did nothing but read. Um, we weren't allowed to do anything else. We, did, we didn't go to art galleries. We never went to the theatre. I, I react slightly against the reading-writing thing, not unlike what Deborah was saying. Like, that wasn't what I wanted to do. But when you're trapped in a house with small children, as um, various feminist critics have pointed out, there's not much else you can do. And I started to write. And now it, it is what I do. You, you describe... In, in your latest book, The Pattern in the Carpet, you describe writing as an illness, a chronic, incurable illness. I was surprised to see those words. In, in, in what way? Yes, I think I was rather, um, feeling rather ill when I wrote that book. <laughs> in, in fact, I was not ill. My husband was ill. Yeah. But I was infected with illness. And I was unable to um, write as I wished to write. And yet I had to write something. And I know quite a lot of ageing writers, and I must 
class myself in their company now, who feel they've got to go on writing but don't particularly want to. But it is a disease. It's as though you don't know how to fill in the day unless you're writing something. I know writers who haven't published for years, this is sad, who write every day. And I feel increasingly like the woman that my husband used to make fun of, who used to go to the British Museum, as it then was, the British Library, and she would scribble, 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 and when you looked at what she was scribbling, it was complete nonsense. And I sometimes feel I'm getting a bit like that, but I've kind of got to keep doing it, but it's not really making all that much sense anymore. So I think it is a kind of um, a habit. It's a strange life, writing. It involves so much self-will, and I think... I imagine that at some point the will will run out. Well, except the will... You, it... you can run out of things that are possible to say. There are things that are unsayable mm. that one cannot write. And I wrote a sentence this morning on a piece of paper. I wrote two sentences. And these sentences were, my love is stronger than the grave, my love is stronger than the truth. You have to write the truth, but some truths are unsayable. Yes. But I was just thinking when you say that there's some things that are unsayable, you mean unpublishable or you can't even write them down? Because you could write things that you don't publish today or tomorrow, no? In or some curious way, you can't. Hmm. By the act, of, um, the act of writing them down is some kind of betrayal of the things that you can't publish. It's a very complicated business. I suppose if you're used to being published, as the four of us are, it's... It's different. You can't keep a sort of private diary, as some people do, which is never intended for publication. Um, but those of us who have been in the habit of writing for publication, it seems false to write something that you know can't be published ever. Mm. And also the formulating of the ideas is in itself so dangerous, the things that you can't publish. is in itself so dangerous. It's a very dangerous territory. Um, that you wander into once you start to write things that can never be published for reasons that um, are personal. You were going to say something? Well, I find this notion interesting, what you're saying here, because I, I try all the time as a poet to say what's unsayable, that is to kind of, if there is a way of really seeing what I think is unsayable, and to really describing it, that is to describe, you know, all of the layers of it. And I find myself constantly trying to, to yes, do that, say the unsayable, but to truly do it, which is to truly represent all its layers. And I think somehow, if I can do that, then it will pass the test of well, all those who it might be, it might hurt, or, but that somehow it would be so complicated that, as it is, that it would reflect their misgivings as well as mine. Do you know what I mean? Is it possible to find the language to say it in? I think a poet may find it more easily than a fiction writer, because a fiction writer is forever introducing incidentals yes. and circumstantials which yes. are treacherous. Yes. Whereas I think, as a poet, you have the advantage of concentration and distillation and the fact that your readers and you expect a multi-layered reading. Yeah, yeah, yes, perhaps, yes. Even though all my sisters still think I'm writing about them. Oh, so. well. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? And in fact, the reader said, Dion, am I in that book? <laughs> yes, you're in the book. And no, you're not in the book. Do yes. you know what I mean? Because yes. Yes. And are they annoyed that they're in it or that they're not in it? <laughs> annoyed that they're in it. They assume that they're in it, which when they're not in it, and ugh, it's very complicated. <laughs> you know. I'd like to look for a moment at trends you've seen in the world of books over the last 20 years. Andrew O'Hagan, what kinds of changes have you observed? I think it's been amazing to observe the way that writing from, in English from parts of the world which used to be rather arrogantly and unacceptably be called the British colonies has, in a sense, come right to the centre of the stage that post-colonial literature, if you, if you prefer that kind of terminology, um, has become a kind of great wow factor. That started to happen really in the last 20... It didn't start to happen in the last 20 years, but it became a major thing in the last 20 years, I believe. And I remember when I was 21 or 2, when I went to London and I got a job on the London Review of Books, and a lot of the interesting writing that was coming in was by people, as it were, called Amit Chowdhury or Pankaj Mishra. Or, you know, these people were writing so beautifully and, if you like, bending English to a particular new purpose. They were writing better English sentences than the English. And we know about that um, from the experience of watching literature and no, I, me- I remember the headlines in The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. <laughs> or The Empire Writes Back. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the English have got used to people writing better English than they do in North America, Canada. Uh, in America, uh, Australia, elsewhere, um, fantastic writing has been pouring forth for years. But this has been quite new, the way that um, India, Pakistan has been producing uh, a sort of uh, magical sentence, which I think has transformed the whole scene. Yes, I agree agree with that. But I'd also like to add that I think there's been quite an interesting movement of dystopian literature from science fiction into the mainstream over the last 10, 20 years. I mean, um, Margaret Atwood and uh, Cormac McCarthy. I mean, it's been very interesting seeing themes that used to be quite extreme science fiction now being treated by mainstream writers. And it, I, I, I suppose it's ecological, environmental um, work, really. But it's, it's, some of it's really very good, and it... It's just reflecting our apprehension about what, what we're doing to ourselves, I suppose. Dion, your book, A Map to the Door of No Return, looked at, among other things, the consequences of forced migration of, of, of African slaves to the New World. The subtitle of the book is Notes to Belonging. Yeah. What point did you want to make with, with that? I mean, I suppose my sense of literature in the last 20 years has been that it is that nomadic and that place or belonging or identities have become nomadic also. If we were to seriously look at it, what, what we ingest and what we, and what we give out. And so the literature itself has become really, what is the word? Uh, interpolated, deeply, deeply inflected with, with all parts of the world. The world has become quite small in a way. Um, what we know is, is, is so much more. And we read each other and write each other through those kind of new ways of knowing and of, of, of the ways in which the world has become knowable, uh, reachable. Deborah, your work is inflected, if I can borrow 
Dion's uh, word with uh, a, a political sensibility, not not big P politics, but there's, it's informed by that. And do you, is that something that you also have observed in the last couple of decades in terms of fiction writing? Well, I mean, the our private lives are reduced to a greater and greater extent in the sense that uh, the world which we would call political matters, which we would call political, have simply encroached on our experience to such a, a degree, I think, that it's very hard to exclude that element from fiction. I'm sure poetry, to some degree, works differently. Uh, and I think uh, Andrew said, you know, as we were beginning, that there's a tremendous amount of writing now that is attempting to deal with this very turbulent world that we live in. And I, I agree, I do think that that's, uh, that's conspicuous. It, it feels like there's been a, a boom in memoir writing in the past couple of decades. Why do you think that is? I've been sort of amazed by um, the memoir um, fashion. It was a given before the 90s that a promising young writer, prose writer, uh, would be busy with uh, getting on with their first novel. But then there was a, a number of years when it was clear that a lot of the interesting new writers were working on memoirs. I was quite excited by that. I mean, uh, my first book was a, a non-fiction book, The Missing, and it very much dwelt on aspects of my own past. And, and it seemed absolutely natural when I was 20, I published that book when I was 24, which was too young really to write a book like that when I look back on it now, but um, it really caught on that book and it was published in an atmosphere where memoir and non-fiction writing was suddenly very, very much sought after. And people were treating those books as if they were first novels. It was quite interesting to see. So it doesn't feel funny that a fledgling writer would consider their first 24 years or something of sufficient interest to it's write a memoir? It's quite exciting, though. I mean, I, I rather love the notion that, um, that you can write about uh, an emptiness. You know, the idea that sort of you need to be some sort of stuffed shirt of 145 to write a memoir, you know, about your sort of some lying Tony Blair-like account of how you didn't mess up people's lives. Um, that, that seems to me, you know, a rather redundant definition of what memoir should be. I was quite excited when you have these Augustine Burroughs type people suddenly writing about the things that happened in their kitchens when they were kids. It just seemed to broaden our sense of what... what was that, don't run with scissors do. or something like don't that? Don't run with scissors, yeah. yeah. And then in, in the UK you had people like Nick Hornby uh, uh, writing ostensibly about football but actually about his relationship his father, with his father. Yeah. Um, similarly, Blake Morrison's book, When Did You Last See Your Father? They all come out round about the same time. Um, Jenny Diskey's book, Skating to Antarctica, a book about madness and, and her mother. All these books seem to me to engage with not the great pontifications of history and the great sort of lies of uh, you know, self-valuation, um, self which you often get in memoir, but actually something much more tender, something much more novel-like. Um, which was a search for truth in your own shallow, not necessarily exciting life. Do you have any theories as to why that, that particular rise in, in that form? I think something's happened to our notion of truth. Actually, if, if I was to answer you 
honestly. I really think that um, in recent decades, our sense of the fictionality of everyday life has increased. I think we, uh, we saw that around the, the terrible business of 9-11, as it's called. That one of the things that was overwhelming about that day was that it seemed so like something we'd watched in a movie. It seemed so mediated even before the event. We had trouble uh, as we watched again on a loop, those planes going into those buildings. Again and again and again we watched it uh, with an almost stultifying sense of familiarity, that it was spectacular. It was the, 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 the production values were so high um, on this atrocity that we couldn't quite believe it was real. Deborah, you engaged with uh, 9-11 in, in Twilight of the Superheroes. Did you have to grapple with the, the uh, as Andrew was saying, the, the spectacular or spectacle nature of, of, of what occurred? I mean, how did you na- negotiate the, the reality, the fiction, the reaction of your characters to what had happened? Yes, the title story of this, of my last collection, which is called Twilight of the Superheroes, is partly set, I mean, 9-11, as it's called, does come into the story quite conspicuously. And I had had no desire to write about that. I really had no intention of writing about it at all. But I... I do not keep um, a journal of any sort. I've never done that, uh, simply because I immediately go, go to pieces whenever I try to think of even uh, to render the simplest event. I, I'm incapable of doing it. But on the evening of September 11, 2001, I just started to make notes because I thought, well, this is an incredibly uh, protean situation here. We don't know what it is that's happening, and we're not going to know what it's called and how it's cast, how it's interpreted, how it's depicted, until much later. I don't care about that. I want to know about the confusion. I want to I want to, and I know I'm not going to be able to remember that feeling of its protean quality, of its quality of sort of fodder for the future, unless I make a few notes. I'm going to get it all wrong in that word my mother taught me so young. Retrospect, I'll get it all wrong. So I um, just kept notes for quite some time and then uh, and then I turned it into a story. One thing we've seen in Canada in the last 20 years is the creation of major literary awards, the Giller Prize for Fiction, the Griffin Award for Poetry. How important are book prizes? Too important. I mean, yeah, yeah, taking too important. Yeah, way too important. They now stand for reviews, which is awful. Yeah. They're a shortcut to the yes, public. Exactly. Um, it, it bypasses yeah. intellectual It bypasses the kind of attention you give to a book and just exactly. puts in there prize winning. And I think all writers get really, really annoyed yeah. with being called award winning. Yeah. yeah, and there's you know there's no discussion in between these. Yeah. So if one occurs in June, you know, and one occurs in in October, then you know that's all your life in between there. But yeah. book 
dies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it's just a sort of, it's a waste of time, really. Yeah. Uh, and it cuts out a lot of books that don't get the attention. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, if I can, you know, in respect of it, your anniversary, it's one of the really notable things about this show is that it involves itself in a gracious, ongoing, open conversation mm-hmm. about literature. And that's literature's best place. Yes. That's where it thrives. The idea that an annual steeplechase right. should somehow define the reading habits and temperaments of the nation is a sort of, well, childish and silly notion. And we've all got involved in it, by the way. I mean, I speak, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, not as a great despot when it comes to this. I'm always happy to go to the ceremony, put my dicky bow on and sit there clapping and pretending I'm pleased someone else has won. Um, Especially when the camera's on you, I have to say. Uh, We all become experts at that. I practice it in the mirror now. Um, um, But you know, it's a a silly notion that that constitutes a, a, a literary engagement. Uh, writers and company is what constitutes literary yeah. engagement when it comes to discussing writers and writing. Andrew O'Hagan, Deborah Eisenberg, Margaret Drabble, Dion Brand, thank you all very much. Dion Brand's latest book is Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems, which won the L.A. Times Book Prize for Poetry. Dion has a new work coming out called Salvage, described as a bracing account of reading, life, and what remains in the wreck of empire. Margaret Drabble's latest novel is The Dark Flood Rises. Deborah Eisenberg's most recent collection of stories is called Your Duck is My Duck. Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is called Mayflies. He has a new one, Caledonian Road, coming out in June. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. Technical operations by Kira Mahoney. The senior producer of Writers and Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, one of the most masterful Indigenous authors, both fiction and nonfiction, Alexis Wright. Her book, Carpentaria, is hailed as the great Australian novel. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. Meanwhile, Happy New Year. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.